0: Welcome to NASA and Silicon Valley episode 47. Closing out this week for the Kepler and K2 science conference is our guest Geert Berenson, the guest observer office director for the Kepler and K2 mission here at NASA Ames. Geert talks about growing up in Europe and how at a young age he was already bringing people together for science and combining our collective knowledge to speed along discoveries. We talk about his work on the K2 part of the Kepler mission and how they have discovered new objects in our own solar system. So, as a reminder, check out our show notes for the link to the Exoplanet Week webpage for everything Kepler and the science conference. So, here is Geert Berenson. We started off with, you know, how did you get to NASA? How did you get to Silicon Valley? Tell us about you, Geert. So I came here this
1: morning by bike, but that's probably not what you're asking. So <laughs> that's you very, know, It's that's very granular. It, it's a long story. It, it's really... I think the story is that basically I was really poor at playing tennis and basketball. Okay, That's where it all started. So when I was a kid, I was doing those sports. I was terrible at it. What I was good at was computer programming. So like at (laughs) age eight, like 1991 or something, I was like programming my dad's computer. Like this is before the internet. Okay. Uh, And so I I was always interested in like nerdy things, like in Mm -hmm. science and and so. And so I had incredible privilege of living close to this fabulous astronomy club in Mm -hmm. Belgium, which is the country I'm from. Okay. And this is where I got to hang out with all these like, smart kids and other people that had my same sort of passions. So, for example, what we would do is every summer we would like, rent this massive bus loaded with all the telescopes we could find hey. and like, head to France for 10, 10 days or indeed 10 nights mm-hmm. and do astronomy. Oh, wow. And so, like, from a young age, this is like when you, you're like,
0: like eight, nine years old, you're doing this stuff? Yeah, so
1: I joined the club when I was 12. Okay. And I got to be in this in this club, which had, like, people that were in university, and they were trying to do real science. Uh-huh. And so one thing we would do in France was count shooting stars. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't just, like, mess around. We yeah. would record exactly the times we were looking at, the quality of the sky. We would record our pee breaks. And so we would then process the data during the day. Like, we didn't really sleep. We would process the day, and we would, like, compute the flux the number of meteoroids per second per square kilometer that would hit the atmosphere.
0: So, how do you even find something like this as a kid? I mean, were your parents like super into it, or just so were, I, Yeah, Yeah, and like
1: as, as we many astronomers, so my dad was actually a physics teacher.
0: Oh, that helps. Um, so, you know. If he would have been a professional soccer player, then that would have been a different path.
1: But even <laughs> then, the fact that I had access to a club, which in, so yeah. Belgium has this amazing system where they have like something like five or six astronomy clubs, which actually uh-huh. government funds, not at a high level, like they pay mm-hmm. for like one or two staff to run the club, mm-hmm. but then you have a place to go and to show your passion and that really changed my life. So I, I'm guessing then.
0: Also, growing up, you watched like you, you'd see stuff you know from the states, like the, the shuttle, NASA shuttle missions. You see movies, stuff. Were you always kind of thinking that you would want to work in the space industry, whether it's NASA or ESA or anything else like that? Or
1: so you know, my real uh, passion in early age was computer science. I was really good. Okay. At, I was making websites when my elementary school teachers hadn't heard of the internet in 1995.
0: Re- like, really, like prodigy or something like that, or. American Online,
1: yeah, yeah. So I was like making this website about about astronomy, about my hobbies. I had a website at one point, like in the nineties, where I was like uh, hosting astronomy software I found online, and I like, would like writing tutorials and so on. Uh-huh. So like my obvious pathway, and I do think you should sort of study what you're passionate about and good at, was to do computer science at university, okay. which is what I did. Um, now. I had this big passion for science as well, and my club had taught me that science was this ongoing endeavor, Mm -hmm. and I could make contributions because I was there in the field in France making contributions to science. Our data was used by professionals. But then, I think what really changed things was January 2004, Mm -hmm. when the Spirit Rover landed. Oh, really? Okay. This is before YouTube even existed, but the internet had evolved well enough. that video streaming started to become pretty good. Yeah. And on NASA TV, you could log in every day and watch the press conferences with Steve Squires, who was the um, instrument <laughs> scientist for, for, the, for the rovers. And NASA, you know, this is where NASA excels, right? NASA would uh-huh. be telling us, the general audience, exactly what was going on. They would share the images, share the pictures, share everything that was going on, be fully transparent. And I was so excited. The thrill of discovery... Uh-huh. Was immense. And then just a year later, in January 2005, a second thing happened, which is the Huygens probe. Okay. Uh, arrived at Saturn with the Cassini uh, mission. You know, Cassini's still going. Still going, yeah. And landed in the, actually descended onto the surface of Titan. And so by that time, so I was still in university doing computer science, but you know I was like you know on the internet in these internet-related chat rooms, IRC mm-hmm. chat rooms or the, <laughs> yeah. the thing back like then. So I like a bunch of friends there, and like we had figured a way through connections and so on to get access to this data at mm-hmm. the same time as the scientists because they were posted on some web server. And so when the spacecraft came down, we were able to figure out how to open these binary files that came from the spacecraft, and, and look at really? the images before they were even in the news or before other scientists had oh, seen it. Oh, that's them. hilarious. But the thrill of discovery mm-hmm. that this gave me was so immense that I was like, yeah, this is it. This is what I should do.
0: And, and so how did that lev- leverage, I mean, for school, like how going from Belgium to the United States,
1: how, how does that work? So I finished my degree in computer science, and that all went well. I, I had the opportunity to do a PhD in computer science, but it's not what I wanted. Okay. So, you know, by that stage, using like the shooting star science, I'd actually co authored some papers, some scientific papers, uh, and I met some people. I went to these international meteor conferences where like amateur astronomers meet professionals and they like share their results. And so I managed to end up in this traineeship program at the European Space Agency at the okay. headquarters in, in Holland, which is sort of the NASA aims of, of if, ESA, if, the yeah. European Space Agency. And So I got to work on this uh, fabulous project. One of them was uh, for Venus Express, which was an orbiter around Venus, mm-hmm. which orbits Venus very closely, and which really was taking close-up images of Venus's atmosphere they wanted to know what was going on on the larger scale. They wanted to get a big picture of the atmosphere of Venus. And you could only do that from Earth using like a small telescope and, yeah. a, and a webcam to actually get the whole atmosphere imaged. And amateur astronomers are actually very good at this. And with my background, I was able to set up this <laughs> website and rally the amateur astronomy troops to like upload their images of Venus in real oh, wow. time
0: to ESA. You're crowdsourcing before it was a thing. Crowdsourcing <laughs> citizen
1: science. Yeah, right? really. And, uh, and thats that's been the theme of my life. I've always been very interested in how normal people can sort of be part of the scientific endeavor, which I think is important.
0: And then how does that end up all the way in California? It so you know, yeah. uh,
1: it is great, I was doing more and more results, so I, I managed to get some PhD offers. Mm-hmm. I went to Ireland to do a PhD on star formation. So okay. again, I got the thrill of discovery, of discovering new stars that had just formed in the last few million years, analyzing big data sets. Um, I I, I got to live in in the city of Belfast in Northern Ireland, which has some of the most beautiful and warm people on this planet. And I I loved it, and you know, on a a sunny day, Ireland is this lush green (laughs) hills. On a sunny day. (laughs) With like dotted with white dots, which are sheep, it turns out. Um, (laughs) Nice. You know, this led into a postdoc in England where I was still working on these data sets. Um, But you know, academia can be pretty lonely. And I was having lots of fun working with big data sets. We were measuring all the stars we found in the galactic plane towards the galactic center doing, like, these big surveys, big data. Again, that's my computer science background, mixing yeah, with you. my PhD in astronomy. Um, and I was having lots of fun. But then something happened at at NASA, which is at the Kepler mission, which is this incredible and perhaps one of the most you know transformative missions NASA's ever done by discovering you know 5,000 planets yeah. orbiting other stars, um, suffered a malfunction. Mm-hmm. So back in 2013, it lost a second of its four uh, stabilizers, reaction wheels. Yeah. And if you look at headlines from that time, it says NASA gives up on the Kepler mission. Oh, wow. And, you know, Capra had been a fantastic success at that point. Yeah. Uh, it, delivered, it had changed the way I look at the sky because it, it had rewrote, you know, textbooks.
0: <laughs> it, right. it changed like, everything. suddenly we
1: knew that there's more planets than stars in our galaxy, which uh-huh. means hundreds of billions of planets, right? Yeah. Um, but so it suffered this malfunction, and people thought it was over. But, and this is a, a fantastic feature of the people that built and operate Ames over at Ball Aerospace in Colorado and at NASA Ames here in Silicon Valley. They figured out a way to make it work. And this is insane, because now we're at this stage, so we have a new mission called K2, which Mm -hmm. uses the uh, Kepler, this spacecraft, despite its uh, malfunctions with the stabilizers. It uses it in a new way, Mm -hmm. and it has been incredibly successful. We are now at 250 publications. We've discovered 150 confirmed planets. We've done all this uh, astrophysics with it. Mm and we're almost at the stage where people have forgotten how impossible this mission was. Yeah, like it shouldn't exist. It should, just <laughs> yeah. if any other two combination of reaction wheels had failed, or you know, the fact where the antennas are on the spacecraft and all yeah. this stuff. You know, if you would go to the, you know, Kepler was designed to look for four years to this one field in the sky to find you know, Earth-like planets. Suddenly, we were still able to use it, but we had to look at a different field mm-hmm. every three months with a spacecraft that was less stable because our stabilizers are broken. This is like asking the astronauts on the ISS, on the Mm -hmm. International Space Station, to suddenly start orbiting the moon, uh, paint the station pink, and only eat chicken waffles. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit hyperbolic, but like, and so (laughs) it's such an incredible testament to NASA's agility and like the agileness and and incredible talent and skills of the engineers on this project that they were able to make it work. Now, this is where I come in, it's that, we had this brand new mission, and NASA, again, to their credit, said, okay, you seem to have a way to make this work. You have no results yet, but sure, here's money for two years to make yeah, this work. see if you can happen. And so Tom Barclay, who you have interviewed at the time.
0: Yes, th- um, th- for the fans of the podcast, this is one of our earlier interviews, you know.
1: He was uh, right in the middle of uh, figuring out, you know, how are we going to make this work? How are, Which targets are we going to observe? Which stars mm-hmm. are we going to look at? How are we going to fund scientists to then use this data? How are we going to process the data? Because the pipeline, you know, was made for a different type of, of, of data and everything. Uh, and so he, he got money from from NASA to, to uh, run this mission along with the project scientist and, and so on. And so he needed a few people that would be able to uh, hack this mission because the k2 mission <laughs> is like this massive hack it's really yes, like, exactly know, apollo 13 was a big hack you know saved people's lives you know k2 is almost as big a hack because <laughs> all the procedures we had in place for kepler no longer applied yeah procedures that were written over years and years in advance of the mission so me with my computer science background, so I was able to do programming, and with my broad view on astronomy of different I was gonna kinds.
0: say, you have experience rallying the troops. To rallying the troops, to... you know,
1: get the community to work together to make the best of the data, even if it's not you know, the same quality as Kepler. it's almost the same quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, he tried to get me to join, and, and I said no, actually, because <laughs> I, my postdoc had just been extended for three years. Yeah. But then he, he sat me down and he said, you know, Gert, you know then in California, People have avocado trees in their garden. <laughs> nice. And by the way, this mission is going to be great because the reaction wheels that we have left are going to survive. They had this engineering data showing that yeah. like everybody was thinking that K2 might just live for six months or something. Yeah, they really know. It was, really no, risk, it was you know? completely new territory. It was a huge risk to join this mission. Wow. Uh, and he, he convinced me, and he was right. He knew. He had this incredible feel for making it work. He stayed up, you know. 24 seven at certain times when the spacecraft was testing the new operations. Um, and so I, I took the risk and, and I joined. And uh-huh. it's paid off tremendously because K2 is this incredible project which has now um, you know, benefited so many junior astronomers' lives. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing, with K2, yeah. we were able to make all the data public straight uh-huh. away Yeah, because we had these new operations and we needed everybody's help to make this work and figure out how to analyze this data. And that was perhaps the biggest argument for me to join because I then thought back about the Huygens probe landing on yeah. Titan, and you know NASA allowing me to witness Spirit's, uh, you know, the Mars rover exploration of Mars, and being able to work for a mission that would put all its data public yeah. straight away would be such a great opportunity to be on the other end of this and inspire other people
0: well that's the thing because it's like the, the, the kepler telescope or space telescope takes in so much data like it doesn't make sense for nasa to hoard it for itself or even for our own astronomers to look at it it's just once you open it to the scientific community you get results faster papers are written faster you learn what is hit what like knowledge is hidden in that data
1: like we should so never much. underestimate the creativity of, of yes, humans not absolutely. just professional scientists but everyone
0: and now, and, and now you, you, you glazed over it because Tom has since moved over to Goddard, I believe. Tom
1: did such a good job that <laughs> yes. um, he uh, is now trying to make t- the test mission uh, a success on the, on the NASA site. So he's is um, this new mission that's going to look at the brightest stars mm-hmm. across the entire sky um, to find more planets. And I think part of K2's legacy is that the test data is going to be fully public as well. Instantly, which is so exciting,
0: excellent. And, and so, and then you basically moved into that role. I moved into that. Tom's
1: role. and now, so what what I do as the guest observer, office director to use okay. NASA English is to um, you know make sure we observe the right stars, so we get people to observe uh, to write proposals saying this is why we should observe this and that star. We rank them using peer review. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then figure out which pixels we have to downlink to observe those stars. We're limited on bandwidth. Um, and then we uh, make sure those data end up in the archive we give people the tools um, to work with that data uh, and we try to rally the troops you go to conferences tell them you know we have this and that data and you can do this and that with it please you yeah know, join the join the fun.
0: so I remember when I when we first met it was actually through a phone call and I don't know if you remember but it was a while back it was a journalist was asking, I believe it was about um, planets or planetoids like in our solar system for some reason kepler had picked up on yeah we k2, some, we k2 found some of the information about it
1: we do whatever the community tells us is the highest priority so okay. one thing we're now looking at the ecliptic plane which is the plane of our solar system one thing that happens is that we have these interesting distant objects called trans neptunian objects okay which are a bit bodies like pluto often a bit smaller but like in those far regions of the solar system we look at them and we get this amazing space based data from them which tells us the um, exact rotation periods and, it, and from the rotation period we can infer something about their history we can infer if they might have a moon or not and indeed this object actually after the press interview we did uh, actually turned out to have a moon Oh really? Yeah okay. this is something we I didn't even tell you yet uh, <laughs> because the rotation period of this object was very slow and uh-huh. that's something that's very common for bodies with a, with a moon because uh, moons tend to lead to slower orbits, and is this all a part of like like the Kuiper Belt? It's that far out or, or, yeah. How, or yeah? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah,
0: yeah is it just in it, it was it's not discovering something new; it's just understanding more about it. Like yeah, the these are objects we know.
1: Like now, since our last conversation, maybe yeah. a year ago, actually, Kepler has discovered brand new Kuiper Belt objects just because people have been going through all the pixels we download and they say, hey, there's this thing moving. I wonder what it is. Hey, it's not in any database. And so this thing now has a number, which means that it's sort of being followed up now by other telescopes and it's a brand new object in the solar system. You right.
0: know? And we we alluded to it previously, but um, perhaps go, go into a little bit of detail for if anybody is just joining the podcast. This is the, their first one that they've ever listened to. Um, talk a little bit about the difference of what The the point in the sky that Kepler looked at versus, what, K2? You said the elliptic,
1: but explain a little bit what that means. So the Kepler spacecraft looked for four years towards the constellation of Cygnus, the swan, which you can see with the naked eye quite easily in in the summer night sky, uh, to find planets um, on Earth-like orbits around Earth-like stars. And you need to look for several years to see them because, like, our Earth only... Orbits every year. Yeah, yeah, okay. three
0: hundred and sixty-five days. You know, you have to
1: wait. <laughs> you Have to wait. So, if you we want to see like three transits, so three times watching the star pass in front of the. Sorry, watching the planet pass in front of the star. Mm-hmm. If you see that sort of three times, that starts to give you a pretty good yeah, idea yeah. that it might be real and not noise. Um, So you have to look for three, four years to to get that data. Now with key two, we can no longer do that. We can only look for three months at a time at a field because of the new way that we are using solar radiation pressure to balance the spacecraft. And that field changes. And that field changes every three months. So like right now, I have to um, deliver the targets, the stars, the pixels that we want to downlink for the next campaign uh, by next Thursday, for example. So that's part of my job. In fact, next week, we're going to start a brand new field, which has uh, a really cool object in it. It's called Wolf 359. Okay. It is the fifth closest star system to Earth. It's eight light years away, which is incredibly close for- Yes, considering. (laughs) Uh, You know, finding a planet around Wolf 359 will be fantastic because having planets really close to our own sun uh, gives us the best opportunity at using NASA's other facilities, like the James Webb Telescope in Mm -hmm. the future and the Spitzer Space Telescope to really Try to understand it, the atmospheres of those planets by looking at light passing through the atmosphere of those planets. For example,
0: and so talk a little bit about the campaigns. H- how does how do campaigns get formed together? How do you guys decide what you're looking at, what you're not going to look at?
1: So we, um, we and how to, often
0: are the campaigns even? Yeah.
1: So we do campaigns, as we call them, three months at a time, which is the maximum amount of time we can stare at a field without the sun starting to shine, <laughs> either on the electronics at the back or <laughs> yeah. on the inside the tube, the telescope tube at the front. Okay. Uh, so we can do for three months, we have to look in the ecliptic plane because mm-hmm. if we orient our spacecraft just in the right way towards the sun, that mm-hmm. the solar radiation pressure is balanced on the solar panels, this kind of complicated geometry, it yields us with a field at a given time, we can only look at that one field. So we just look, you know this, we're in this time of the year, this is where we're gonna look. We announce this field to astronomers, and then they'll tell us, oh, you know, these are the objects we want to look at. Oh, cool. Uh, and so this is a very careful process. We want to make the best use of this unique space telescope. And so we, like a year in advance, people start writing proposals. We send them out to other astronomers who rank them, and we make a ranking of the highest priority things to observe. Uh, and that's how we get these campaigns. Mm-hmm. So every three months we have a new campaign, and it takes us about three months to then process the data. and. Uh, publish them online for everybody to use. All
0: right. so this may be a little bit in the weeds, but I've seen some of the illustrations and things that the Kepler team has put out. And you think of like, like the space in the sky that it looks at. Um, it's not like it's, here's a big square or a big circle where we're looking at. Sometimes they have it, like the design is like, there's like a couple squares and yeah, almost yeah, like, yeah. why? Yeah. It almost looks like a, like a Rubik's cube, but with missing
1: corners or something. So why is it like that? So you can think of the Kepler Space Telescope as a really big uh, DSLR, like a really big digital camera that you could buy in a shop, except ours is like really big. It's it's many meters high. So our camera has 100 megapixels. Okay. Now it's in deep space. This spacecraft is one AU, or indeed 150 million kilometers away from Earth. It's Mm -hmm. the the same distance as the Earth is from the sun. Oh, wow. At those distances, it takes huge antennas to get the data back. And even then, we only do like a few megabits per second. Um, And so we cannot downlink 100 million pixels. All at once. For like, you know, some pixels we observe with one minute cadence. So every minute we observe the intensity of the light in that pixel. We mm-hmm. cannot download all those pixels because we have to turn the spacecraft's um, antenna to Earth and it, it would take months to download all those data. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we figure out which are the most interesting pixels. So for maybe 20 or 30,000 stars that we think are the most interesting, we download the pixels around those stars. And so that's why when you look at the actual data from, from K2, you see all these small like postage stamps where we just have collected the light from those you know, 20, 30, 40,000 stars, because the community, the astro- astronomers in universities have told us those are the stars that are most interesting for their varied science cases.
0: Wow. And as you mentioned how far away Kepler is from us, basically the way it works, is if, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you know, the Earth circles the Sun, mm-hmm. and it's almost like Kepler kind of follows behind the Earth.
1: That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kepler is in this Earth-trailing orbit, okay. that means it is on an orbit that's very similar to Earth around the sun, mm-hmm. except it's on a uh, slightly longer orbit. So okay. Earth you know, revolves around the sun every 365.24 days. Uh, Kepler has something like a 370-day orbit okay. that was launched eight years ago. So over time, it has started drifting away from the Earth, and so now it's about you know 40 days uh, behind the Earth, trailing mm-hmm. the Earth, uh, which leads to this big distance. It's It keeps going, uh, getting more and more and more, and eventually it's going to disappear behind the Sun. Mm-hmm. And then it's actually going to come back, and eventually the Earth will catch up again with Kepler. It will oh, still wow. be quite far, but uh, Bill Baruki, who is the original uh, uh, principal investigator of the mission, actually, is, is trying to convince young people that they should uh, step up and try, when Kepler it uh, was back. back in our vicinity in the 2040s or something, to actually go and get it and put it in the Smithsonian.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> that just seems like an obvious thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Another thing that's very exciting about this mission, as I said, is all the data is public, so we're able to do really cool and new things. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, last month I, I, I traveled to Australia, to a big observatory there, because the BBC, which is a British uh, public broadcaster, has this yeah. uh, format called Stargazing Live, it's a live TV show that goes out three nights in a row, and for one hour they put real astronomy on primetime television. It's a, it's a fabulous oh, wow. concept, which, which, and it's actually made by astronomers. I, okay. I, actually, I can't believe they get away with it in primetime, but it's <laughs> in part because it's live. So they actually sold this concept to Australian television now. So for three nights in a row, we made this show on Australian television
0: mm-hmm. where a
1: million viewers were educated about astronomy, they shot the constellations and so on. Now, as part of this show, which is presented by a professional astronomer, we did this project where we set up a website called Exoplanet Explorers with okay. the help from scientists at the University of Santa Cruz near Silicon Valley. Um, and we told the viewers, the Australian public, hey, why don't you help us out? This is what we're doing, this is the light signal, we're looking when a planet transits in front of the star, we're looking for this signal. We have just downloaded data for 30,000 stars two weeks ago using antennas in Australia, which is part of the Deep Space Network. Please help us figure out uh, where (laughs) the new planets are. So that's what we told the viewers for like five or 10 minutes live on air, Then the next show, we gave them an update, oh, this is so far what you've been founding. we're looking into your uh, results. So on the third show, the third night of this live TV show, we were able to announce the discovery of a new solar system, 200 light years away, with four planets in it. And the first person to have uh, classified that system, to have uh, pointed out that that system existed, was a car mechanic from Darwin, Oh, that's hilarious. And so the TV awesome. producers actually rushed a TV crew to Well, me. of course. <laughs> and so they interviewed <laughs> them live on air. How do you feel about, about having discovered a new planet? And so on. So now I'm, I, I have this I have this paper in my hand. So this is just last month, right? Uh-huh. So in meanwhile, we've, we've um, written up this paper announcing this exciting discovery. And so Andrew Gray, who's this car mechanic from Darwin, Australia, is on this paper. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. And so we're trying to do this thing where we try to really open up the... Uh, process of scientific discovery. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, because, you know, in my grand moments, I really think that this can have long-lasting consequences. And so we're, we're playing... I'm, I'm personally very interested in the coming months and years to really figure out how we can do more of this type of, of, of thing. So I started going around Silicon Valley giving this talk called How to Find a Planet where I go to people's houses, often you know, engineers, but usually no astronomical experience. And I tell them, here's the code you need to find planets. And I let them, I show them data, and we go through it together. And maybe 30 minutes later, they've discovered a planet.
0: Excellent. So for anybody who's listening, you have any questions, anything for Geert, uh, we're at NASA Ames. Also, the the Twitter handle, um, at NASA Kepler, is uh, is one of our sister (laughs) Twitter feeds that we always share information back and forth. And we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Uh, So you can send any questions your way. We'll... Flip it on over to Gear for responses. So. Yeah,
1: and specifically for the K2 mission, there's a hashtag called hashtag K2 mission. Oh, excellent. And what's going on right now today is like people have been finding this star with a strange behavior. People are discussing that star and the recent data right now. Mm-hmm. And that happens all the time on this hashtag. Whenever there's new data coming down, people are using astronomers are using this hashtag to share in real time what's going on is that a reference to the tabby star tabby star right now Oh, because we have some stuff
0: in the works for that one but no spoilers no
1: spoilers but it's exciting
0: (laughs) excellent well thank you so much for coming over
1: yeah it's fun